Father, we thank you for that truth that you are a holy God. Uh, the God that we worship is not like the gods, the false gods that the, the pagans have dreamed up. You are a holy God. And Lord, uh, apart from what you've done for us through your Son, our Lord Jesus, we would have no hope of approaching you because we are not holy. We are sinful. We have fallen short of your glory. And yet you sent your Son to take the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And he died on that cross in our place and he rose from the dead so that we could have the privilege of drawing near to you. And Lord, as we come to your word, Help us to do just that, to draw near to you with faith. And as we study your word together, may our hearts burn because your spirit is taking your word and operating on our hearts, cutting away the sin and nourishing uh, the Christ-likeness that you have caused to begin to take root within our characters. May you have your way in us, Lord, as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Galatians 3. We're continuing to work through this chapter, chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 10 through 14 this morning. Verses 10 through 14. All right, let me read that for us. Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul writes, For as many as are of the works of the law... Are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The more important a decision is, or the more impactful that decision will be, the more certain we want to be that we're making the right decision, right? For example, if I'm deciding where to eat out a certain Friday night evening. I don't think a lot about it. I don't analyze it overly. I just go wherever I'm craving to go, wherever my family wants to go. And if I make a poor decision, it's not all that costly. I might wake up in the morning with a tummy ache or regret having spent that money on that food, but I'm not too upset about it. Uh, a couple months ago, I went shopping for a car, and I put a lot more thought into that purchase because it was going to be a lot more impactful to me and to my family. I spent weeks researching various makes and models, looking up what the most reliable years were of those makes and models, and when I was interested in a car, I would look up the vehicle history to make sure that I wasn't buying a lemon. I didn't want to swing and miss on that decision because I knew it would be quite harmful to us financially if I screwed it up. Well, in the book of Galatians, Paul is talking about something that is infinitely more significant, infinitely more impactful than what I've just described. 
And the Galatians have gotten confused about this thing that is so impactful. Paul is talking about eternal salvation. And he's talking about the one way to be saved. And this is not something that you want to swing and miss on. This is something you want to be certain about. And the Galatians, they've gotten confused. They learned that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But others came in saying, no, salvation is by grace plus your own personal merit. It's through faith plus your works. It's in Christ plus yourself. And the Galatians are being presented with these two ways, and they need to choose which way is the right way. And their decision is going to punch them a one-way ticket to one of two eternal destinations, either heaven or hell. And it's a place that you cannot come back from. And Paul here is helping them make the right decision. And these are things that we must not take lightly. When it comes to eternity, we need to be certain that we're making the right choice, that we're walking on the right path. And if we're confused about it, we must not rest until we gain clarity about it. And if we have unanswered questions as to which is the right way to go to be made right with God, we must not rest until we have those questions answered. And that's why I so appreciate how Paul goes about writing this letter to the Galatians, because he is taking it deadly seriously. He is exhaustively laying out the issues so that every question is answered, every confusion is cleared away, so that these believers know what is the way to God and what is not. And as we continue to study this letter, we're going to have that made clear to us as well. In chapter 3, Paul is in the process of proving a statement that he made back in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Paul there says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified or declared righteous by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. In chapter 3, Paul is beginning to prove that statement that he made in chapter 2, verse 16. And do you remember how he began? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, what did he appeal to first to prove that statement? He appealed to the personal experience of the Galatians. Remember, he was asking them, how did you receive the Spirit? Did God send the Spirit into your lives because you got circumcised or observed certain feast days? Or did you receive the Spirit by faith? And the answer was by faith. They'd received the Spirit by faith. Now, a few weeks ago, verses 6 through 9, Paul turns a corner. He begins to prove justification by faith by appealing to what? To Scripture, right? And whose example did he highlight in verses 6 through 9? Abraham. That's right, Abraham. He proved from the life of Abraham in the scriptures that justification is by faith. And he took us to two scriptures, right? What was, what was the first scripture he took us to in uh, verse 6? Anybody remember that one? Genesis, yes, 15, 6. 
And there we learned that Abraham believed God, and it, his, his belief in God, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Before he ever got circumcised, Abraham was justified by faith. And then Paul took us to Genesis 12, verse 3. That's in verse 8 of Galatians 3. He took us to Genesis 12, 3, where God promised Abraham that in him all the who would be blessed. The nations, right? The nations. They would receive blessing even though they were of the nations and not of Israel. They would be blessed, which tells you salvation, divine blessing, comes not because you become a Jew, not because you get circumcised, but through faith in God. In verse 9, Paul concludes that it is those who are of faith who are blessed with Abraham the believer. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And you'd think he can stop arguing this now. He's proved it from Scripture. We don't really need to investigate it any further. But he doesn't stop there. Paul wants to be exhaustive. He wants to answer every question. He wants to clear up every confusion. So he continues to argue and to prove that justification is by faith. He's just done so positively by saying it is by faith that you receive the blessing of God. It is by faith that you're justified. Now, in verses 10 through 14, he's going he's to argue the negative. He's going to argue that the law, rather than faith, brings cursedness rather than blessing and condemnation rather than justification. So he's, he's proving the negative in verses 10 through 14. But we're going to start looking at verses 10 through 12, all right? In verses 10 through 12, we're going to see Paul tell us why the law can only curse. Why is it that I have to believe in order to be justified? Why can't I obey law to get justified? Paul's going to tell us why. It's because the law can only curse you. If you rely on the works of the law, you can only be cursed. And he's going to prove that to us by giving us three scriptural reasons why the law can only curse. And the first reason is in verse 10. And that reason is that the law necessitates or requires sinless perfection. The law requires sinless perfection. And we're going to spend the most time on, on this point, and then we'll go quicker through the other points. Um, so if you look at your watch and say, wow, he's going a long time on this point, don't fear because we're not going to drag this on forever. But let's look at verse 10. So Paul's made the positive case in verse 9, right? Through faith you are blessed with Abraham. Now he makes the negative case in verse 10. By the works of the law, you're cursed. By the works of the law, you're cursed. Look at verse 10. How does Paul begin this verse? He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under what? A curse. A curse. That's Paul's claim. He's claiming that those who rely on the works of the law to be made right with God, to be justified, are cursed. They're condemned. They're not blessed. They're not justified. They're cursed. They're condemned. And Paul proves this from the Old Testament. Again, he's taking us back to Old Testament scriptures. He proves this from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. 
and he combines it with Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. Let me read the rest of this verse. He says, For as many as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Let's head back to Deuteronomy so we can look at the context of this passage that Paul is quoting from. Deuteronomy 27. And the bulk of of Paul's quotation, or much of it anyways, comes from verse 26 of chapter 27. But what what is Moses doing in chapter 27? Well, he's preparing the Israelites to enter into where? They're going to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And he wants them, once they cross the Jordan and get over to the other side, he wants them to copy down all the law so that they're reminded of what the law of God is, what God requires of them. And then he wants them to rehearse to one another what the curses will be if they fail to obey what God says. And in chapter 27, from verse 15 all the way through verse 25, Moses gives them many different scenarios under which they'll be cursed. And it's all examples of sin, examples of disobeying the law of God. And then he sums it up in verse 26. He says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And then Moses continues in chapter 28. He continues to outline the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. In verses 15 through the rest of the chapter, or much of the rest of the chapter, Moses is explaining what kind of cursing this is that will come upon you if you don't do what God says. And at the end of that long section of describing the curses that will come, Look at what he says in verse 58, which Paul incorporated into his quote. Verse 58, he says, If you're not careful to observe how many of the words of this law? All. If you're not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and on your descendants even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. So God promises that if you disobey, you'll be cursed. That's what he promises the Israelites. But that's not all that he promises. He also promises blessing. At the beginning of chapter 8, he goes through the blessings that come from obedience. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. Moses says, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do how many of his commandments? All his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Then look at verse 13. The Lord your God or the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, 
which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from how many of the words? Any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. So, blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. But look again at Galatians 3 and verse 10. What does Paul say in verse 10? He says, as many as are of the works of the law are under what? He doesn't say blessing or curse. He says a curse. If you're of the works of the law, you're under a curse. And that doesn't seem to square with what Moses was saying back in Deuteronomy because those weren't the only two options, right? If you're of the works of the law, you're cursed or what? Or blessed. But what, how do you get the blessing? What do you have to do to get blessed under the works of the law? You have to obey just a little bit or have a trend of obedience? No, you have to obey all of the works of the law. What about those people? Paul seems to forget those people. What about those people who obey the law perfectly? Well, are there any of those people? No, there are none of those people. There are none who obey the law of God perfectly, right? And, and the Old Testament is clear about that. Let me rattle off several verses that say that very thing. Just listen. Don't try to keep up and turn. I'm just reading them quickly. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 says, There is no man who does not sin. Psalm 15, verse 3, says, All have turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 130, and verse 3, asks a rhetorical question. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the expected answer is no one. No one could stand. Psalm 143, verse 2, says that in God's sight, no man living is righteous. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And then, of course, there's Paul's famous statement in Romans chapter 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one obeys it all. No one except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from Christ, who, who then qualifies to receive the blessing promised by God in Deuteronomy 28? Nobody. So is Paul using this verse wrongly when he says, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse? Is he wrong to say it that way? No, he's exactly right. He's exactly right to say it that way. But hold on. Just a minute before we say case closed. Doesn't the law provide forgiveness? So if you disobey, are you automatically cursed? Is there, under the law, is there no way to get back on the pathway of blessing? What did the law prescribe for those who disobeyed? Sacrifices, right? If you, if you sinned against the law of God, if you fell short, you could offer an animal sacrifice and be atoned for, be forgiven, and be placed back on the pathway of blessing. So despite disobedience, there was still a way to encounter blessing. So isn't Paul wrong to just categorically deny that whoever's of the work of the law will be blessed? 
will nobody of the work of the law will be blessed? Is he right to say that? Well, there's some faulty reasoning for those who think that, that Paul is wrong to say what he says. Listen to what Hebrews says about the Old Testament sacrifices. Turn to Hebrews 10. Because you might think, it's okay, I don't need Jesus. I can go to the law. The law tells me I can just offer a sacrifice if I disobey. I don't need Jesus. I can go to the law and just get forgiven by offering a, a dead animal. That's how I can get forgiven. Well, not so fast. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never... By the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And this is not just some New Testament invention. Go over to Psalm 49. The Old Testament itself acknowledged the inadequacy of sacrifices to make a man right with God. Psalm 49 and verse 7. says, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Why not? For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Right there we're told that there's no way for one man to redeem another man. Because the soul of man is costly, there's nothing that another can give for that that sinner that will bring him into life eternal, much less the blood of bulls and goats. Look at Psalm 51. David recognized that sacrifices were not sufficient to atone for his adultery and his murder. Psalm 51, verse 16. David says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So if, if animal sacrifice couldn't really take away sins, how is it that in the Old Testament when someone offered a sacrifice, how is it that they were forgiven? How is it that their sin was atoned for when they did that? Well, it's because of what those animal sacrifices pointed ahead to, Right? They were effective, not because they were effective in and of themselves, but they were filled with the effectiveness of the ultimate sacrifice that was to come. Look over at Isaiah 53, which speaks of that ultimate sacrifice that the Messiah himself would accomplish by laying down his own life. This sacrifice that all the animal sacrifices were testifying about 
that we're pointing ahead to. Isaiah 53, and just look at verse 5. He, this Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. An effective sacrifice. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. He calls him the Lamb of God because all of those sacrifices before of a lamb were pointing ahead to that ultimate sacrifice of the Messiah himself, the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. And if the other sacrifices could take away the sin of the world, he wouldn't need to come to do it himself. They were ineffective. Only what he did was truly effective. If, you're still, if you still have a finger in Hebrews, let me read uh, verses 11 through 14 to you. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. That says, Every priest, talking about an old covenant priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Jesus, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." What is a person doing now that Christ has come and has offered the ultimate and the only effective once-for-all sacrifice? What is a person doing who rejects Christ and says, I'm going to go back to the law, and if I sin, I'll just offer a goat? What is that person doing? By rejecting Christ, he's sucking out of all the Old Testament sacrifices any significance or any effectiveness that they ever had because it was all dependent on the ultimate sacrifice. So to reject Christ and to go back to the law is to find yourself without any true way to be forgiven. Do you see how that works? If you're rejecting the one who legitimated the Old Testament sacrifices, you've, you've illegitimized, if that's a word, those very sacrifices. And so if you go back to the law and you sin, what will happen if you offer a goat? Will you be forgiven? No, why not? Because you've, you've rejected the ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could have purchased your pardon. So for the person who says, I don't want what Jesus did, I'm going to do it my own way under the law. If I sin, I'm, I'm going to just offer sacrifice and I'll be okay. That person is deceived. They're not okay. Because however many animals they sacrifice, they're not forgiven because they have rejected the blood of Christ. Such a person is up a creek without a paddle. They're like a, a trapeze artist performing with no safety net, one slip and splat. They're like a person jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. They better flap their arms real hard and fly or they're going to die. The person who goes back to the law has no choice but to obey how much? All of it. Without one slip, 
because if he slips just once, he's cursed, and there's no way for him to be forgiven because he's rejected the only sacrifice God has given by which he can be forgiven. So is Paul correct in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, as many as are of the works of the law are cursed, is he correct? Yes, he is. He is absolutely correct. The law demands perfection. So if you try to get justified that way, you're going to be cursed because you're not perfect. So that's the first reason why the law brings cursing. The second reason is that faith, not law-keeping, is God's prescription. We see this in verse 11. Faith, not law-keeping, is God's prescription. We're done with, with, with the, the holiday of Christmas, right? So the sharing of gifts, the season of sharing gifts is over, but the season of sharing germs is not over. My family's not here. They're all sick with a cold, right? We're still sharing germs. And when you get sick enough to have to go to the doctor, the doctor will prescribe you medication, right? And the doctor, how does the doctor go about doing that? The doctor diagnoses the illness, and he picks the specific medication that will effectively remedy that sickness, right? And if he prescribes you one medication and you say, I like the taste of this other medication, or this is a prettier looking medication, I think I'll try that one. It's either going to do nothing for you or it's going to do something bad, right? It's not going to deal with your illness, right? It's that specific medication that will deal with your specific illness. What has God prescribed for sinners on how to be justified by him? What has God prescribed? Well, Paul tells us in verse 11. Look at verse 11 says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That's the prescription. The righteous man shall live by faith. The way to live is by faith. That's the prescription. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Let's head back there so we can get the context. And if you don't know where it is, go by Isaiah past Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, keep going, past Hosea, past Joel, past Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Okay, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, Paul quotes the second half of that verse. Let me just give you the context of the book here to help you better understand the significance of that that one verse. In chapter 1 of Habakkuk, verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk is complaining to God. He's lamenting the fact that his countrymen of Judah are filled with a bunch of wicked people. And he's wondering when God is going to do something about the wickedness of his people. And then God answers. God answers in, in verses 5 through verse 11 of chapter 1. And what does God say he's going to do? He's going to send the Chaldeans to punish Judah. That's what he's going to do. And then Habakkuk, in verse 12, through the end of the chapter, he is appalled. He's appalled that God is going to send the Chaldeans. Why is he appalled at that? Because the Chaldeans are worse even than the Judeans. And Habakkuk is wondering, how can God use someone more evil than my people 
to punish my people. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk is going to wait to hear God's reply to him, right? And then God does reply in verse 2 through the end of the chapter. And what does God assure Habakkuk about? He assures Habakkuk that he's going to punish the Chaldeans. Even though he's using the Chaldeans to punish Judah, he's not going to let the Chaldeans get off free. He's going to punish the Chaldeans. And after he's done that, he's going to flood the world with his glory. And in the, at the beginning of that message from God, what does he say in verse 4? He says, Behold, as for the proud one, that's the Chaldean, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Verse 4 is God's encouragement of the remnant of his people who are going to be living when those Chaldeans come. When that judgment falls on Judah, God is saying to those who trust him, don't worry, those who believe in me, they'll live. They will live by their faith. So the Chaldeans coming, what is that? We read about that in Deuteronomy 28. That is a what? A curse, right? That's like the fully formed curse. The people sin enough that God kicks them out of the land by a foreign invader. And that, that ultimate curse is coming upon Judah. And God says to his remnant in Judah, don't worry, you're not going to get swept away in the judgment because the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And then chapter 3 Habakkuk is just expressing that faith. What is God's prescription for surviving the judgment that's coming? It's faith, right? And it's interesting that he says faith. He doesn't say the righteous will live by doing the law, by obeying. He says the righteous will live by faith. And certainly doing the law is, the, is what will result from faith, but it's faith that the righteous will live by. Just as to help illustrate this, pretend I'm in my house and the house is burning down all around me. And I'm, you know, I'm low on the floor trying to stay under the smoke and I see a firefighter come walking through the, the smoke and the flame. And I look at him and he's pointing to the side window and he's shouting at me, get out through the side window. How foolish would it be for me to look at him and to see what he's saying and say, that's okay, I think I'm going to try to get out another way. What's going to happen? I'm going to die. I'm going to get burned up in the burning house because I'm not doing what the one who was sent to save me is prescribing for me to do. And that's what we do when we as sinners are looking into the flames of the pit of hell and God comes and says, turn to my son. Trust my son. And we say, that's okay. I think I'm going to try to earn your favor by doing your law. I'll try harder to earn your favor. I don't need Jesus. I'm just going to try harder. If you do that, you're going to be what? Cursed, not blessed, because you're not taking the medicine that God is giving you. So that's the second reason the law brings cursing, because law keeping is not the remedy to our problem. 
It's faith in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. The third reason why law-keeping only brings a curse, reliance on the law only brings a curse, is that the law and faith are separate pathways. The law and faith are separate pathways. We see that in verse 12. Look at verse 12 of Galatians 3. Paul says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, that's the commands of the law, he who practices them shall live by them. In verse 12, Paul says the law is not of faith. In other words, the law and faith are not the same pathway to God. Law and faith, you know, being of the works of the law, being of faith, those are not things that you can mix together in order to get to God. It's an either-or. It's not a both-and. And to prove that, Paul quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5. Let's head back there. Leviticus 18. And he quotes verse 5, but I'm going to start back up in verse 1. Okay, Leviticus 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Verse 4. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. Verse 5, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Paul here quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5, because it's very similar in language to Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And he, he quotes these two and lays them side by side so that you can see the difference. In Habakkuk 2.4, how does the righteous live? It's by faith. In Leviticus 18.5, how do you live? By doing the statutes, right? Do this and you will live. Do my statutes and judgments and you will live. It's either by law or by faith. Not a combination of the two. There are two different ways to being justified. And you can't mix the two, you have to choose one of the two. It's either or, not both and. It's not like you can obey the law 50% and expect your faith to make up for the other 50%. It's not like you can believe and think that, I don't know if my faith is going to get me there, let me sprinkle in some law keeping and that'll get me over the hump and God will declare me righteous. Who was teaching that way to be saved? The Judaizers, right? They were saying to the Galatians, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to what? Be circumcised. You need to sprinkle some law-keeping in there in order to get saved. Yeah, you need to believe, but you also need to obey. That's what the Judaizers were saying. Paul is saying, no, no, no. You're either justified by keeping the law perfectly, Leviticus 18.5, or you're justified by faith, Habakkuk 2.4. And you've got to pick one or the other. You can't do both at the same time. It's one or the other. 
Now, Paul is not saying that there are two ways to be saved. He's already proved that the Leviticus 18.5 is what kind of way to God. It's no kind of way, right? It's a dead end. You can't obey your way to God because you're a sinner. There's no safety net that route. There's no way to be forgiven. There's only one right way to God, and that is through faith in his Son. And if you don't believe Paul about that, maybe you'll believe Jesus. Let's go back to Luke 10. Luke 10, Jesus actually quotes from Leviticus 18. Do this and you will live. Luke 10. In verse 25, Jesus is encountered by a self-righteous lawyer. Luke 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What does this lawyer assume? He assumes he has to do something to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Verse 26, he, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What are those two commandments that the lawyer quotes there? They're the two greatest commandments, right? Because they sum up everything that the law requires. Loving God with everything you are and loving your neighbor just like yourself. And then what does Jesus say in verse 28? And he said to him, you have answered correctly. And then he throws Leviticus 18.5 at him. Do this and you will live. Yeah, those are the two greatest commandments. Do that and you'll live. And it's as if the lawyer instantly senses the weight of those commandments that he has just said he needs to do to gain eternal life because he's looking for some wiggle room. What does he say in verse 29? But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He knows there's certain people he's not going to love that way, right? He wants to make sure it's only these people that I have to love. Who's my neighbor? And then what does Jesus do to help him understand who qualifies as his neighbor. He gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You've got a, a Jewish man who gets beat to within an inch of his life by robbers, and he's lying on the side of the road, desperately in need of help, and you have a priest walk by, you have a Levite walk by, they see him lying there, and they just leave him there in the ditch to die. Then you have a Samaritan. Were Samaritans and Jews friends? No, they were enemies. They did not like each other. And yet this Samaritan walks by and he sees a half-dead Jew. What would you expect a Samaritan to do? If the priest and the Levite leave him for dead, certainly the Samaritan's going to leave him for dead. No, the Samaritan goes to his enemy and patches his, him up, takes him to an inn, basically says, anything you've got to do for this guy, it's on my tab. And when I come back, I'll reimburse what you've done. You know, he, he takes a great risk to provide for this man. He could be taken advantage of by that innkeeper. That Samaritan loved that man, his enemy, 
with great selflessness and sacrifice. And Jesus is, by giving that story, he's telling this lawyer that was what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you'll live. How often do I have to do that? All the time, every day, all day, without hesitancy, without fail, and then I'll live. What should that have done to the lawyer? That should have dropped the lawyer to his knees. He should have said, I can't do that. How can I get eternal life? I can't love that way. And that's what it should do to us. That is the standard. And we should each recognize we have fallen short of that standard, that we can't do that. That way is closed to us because we're sinners. And it should leave us crying out, I need another way to get right with God. I need another way for him to justify me. I need another pathway into the kingdom because I'm cursed unless God does something to give me blessing. And what has God done to free us from the curse of the law. We see that in verses 13 to 14. Back in Galatians 3. How are we freed from the law's curse? How is the pathway of justification by faith opened up to us? He tells us in verses 13 to 14. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul says Christ redeemed us. The word redeem, it means to buy back. We've all broken God's law, just like that lawyer. We've all failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And whether or not we've ever cracked open the Bible to see that that's what the law of God requires, we have what written on our hearts? The work of the law, our what? Conscience, our conscience. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We've each done things that we know is wrong. And we've earned what then? Condemnation, the curse. But Jesus bought us back from the curse of the law. He redeemed us. He delivered us. He substituted himself for us. He put himself under that curse that we earned so that we could be brought out from under that curse that we had earned. And Jesus, or Paul, rather, he doesn't simply say that and expect us to take his word for it. He again offers a scriptural proof. He quotes Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Let's head back there. Deuteronomy 21. Thank you for not throwing anything at me yet for making you flip all these pages. Deuteronomy 21. And let me start in verse 22. Twenty-one, twenty-two. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. 
so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And it's interesting, we see this scenario play itself out a couple times in the Old Testament. Look, if you're willing, at Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 8. This is after Joshua and the Israelites defeat and conquer the city of Ai. Joshua 8 and verse 29. Joshua does something to the king of Ai. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, in keeping with Deuteronomy 21-23, at sunset Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Then we see it again in chapter 10 of Joshua, after the Israelites defeat a coalition of five kings. Joshua chapter 10, verse 26 So afterward, Joshua struck them, the five kings, and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now I want you to go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, this is the crucifixion of Jesus, where he is being hung on what? A tree, wooden cross. And look at verse 31 of John 19. It says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. What effect would breaking the legs have on those being crucified? Make them die quicker, right? Why would the Jews want them to die quicker? Why would the Jews not want them left hanging up on those wooden tree-like structures into the next day? Because of Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. How did they view Jesus? They saw him as what? Someone who was what by God? Cursed by God. But it was only those worthy of death who were to be treated in that way. Jesus hadn't sinned at all, let alone done anything worthy of death. And yet there he is, hanging on a tree, like someone who's cursed by God. And they've got to get him off of there before sundown so that the land is not defiled and God offended. Well, we know that Jesus hung on that tree not for his own deeds worthy of death, but for our deeds that are worthy of death. He became a curse. He was cursed in our place for us. I want you to think about what kind of love that is, that the Son of God the Holy One would become a man and subject himself to that kind of treatment. And to help you get your mind around what kind of love that is, you don't have to turn there, but let me read Romans 9 to you. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, where Paul is talking about his great love for 
his countrymen, the Jews. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul loved his countrymen so much that he could wish to take their place, to be cursed in their place so that they might be saved. He could wish to go to hell if his countrymen would be set free from hell. And for the longest time, I never loved someone that much that I would wish to do that until I had kids. And I know that my kids, unless they trust Christ, that is where they're going. And with Paul, I could wish myself accursed if it would mean they would be released from that. And you see, what Paul wished he could do for the Jews, what I wished I could do for my kids, Jesus actually did for us. He became a curse so that we could be set free. He endured hell on the cross, the wrath of God, so that we could be set free from the wrath of God. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did he become a curse for us? Lastly, Galatians 3, verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's that key phrase in verse 14, in Christ Jesus. That's our union with Christ. Through faith, we are united to Christ, who is the righteous one, so that even though we've earned cursing, in Christ we gain what? Blessing. The blessing of Abraham. Abraham who was justified by faith. So we are justified by faith and we receive he who is the guarantee of our future inheritance, the Holy Spirit. And as believers, we have received that guarantee, the Holy Spirit. Remember, that's how Paul began this whole argument, asking the, the Galatians, how did you receive the Spirit? It wasn't by doing the works of the law. It was by faith. By faith, you were connected to Jesus who became a curse for you to bring you out from under the curse of the law so that you would receive blessing. Dear Galatians, if you abandon Christ and you put yourself back under law, there's no hope for you there. Your hope is in Jesus alone. And I pray that that is where we are looking for our hope, that we're putting all our hope in Christ alone to be our righteousness before God. Because if not, we're cursed. But if we throw our lot in with him, if we trust in him, abandon our efforts to earn the favor of God and trust Christ alone, we won't be cursed. We'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for granting your people patience to, uh, to sit through that and endure all the page flipping. But I pray that in the midst of maybe difficulty in concentrating, that your truth has come through, that, that your spirit would take your word and impress it upon each heart so that we would be all the more certain that following Christ by faith is the right way to be made right with you. It's the only way. Lord, if we have any doubts about that or confusion, 
may you make these things clear to us, that we would forsake trying to get to you any other way than through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to burn all other bridges and to put all our hope in him alone. We ask it in his name. Amen.